0: Well, good morning. morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I am uh, so thankful for this ministry and for your ladies' commitment to Wellspring. Uh, The disciplines that you pursue, uh, the ways that you are eager to shepherd your own hearts and your homes and allow that to overflow into the lives of others in this church uh, have a benefit, um, not just to you, and I hope you know that, uh, but to the rest of this church. And I'm um, so thankful for uh, just the flavor of the ministry uh, here uh, amongst you women. And thankful to be able to join you this morning. Uh, I want to turn your attention to Revelation chapter 2. Just this year we've celebrated the 15th anniversary of uh, Grace Bible Church. Uh, is there anybody that's been here the whole time? Nobody here this morning. Grace Bible Church is 15 years old, and I don't know if you do this at birthdays or anniversaries. Uh, I like to sort of evaluate uh, my life. Janet and I, on our wedding anniversary every year, we'll take an opportunity to evaluate the various areas of our lives. We'll even use our home as a sort of a template to think through. We'll go through each of the, the kids' rooms and say, okay, how's, how are we doing with this kid? Uh, how, you know?" We'll use each one of the rooms in our house to describe a, a different portion of our life. And just evaluate. uh, How how are we doing this year? Uh, What do we want to improve? What are are the things we want to change? Uh, A lot of people do this at New Year's. uh, They will evaluate their lives and think about, how did I do this last year? And they'll make promises that last for 11 days uh, into the next year or whatever. Sometimes birthdays uh, present an opportunity. You say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm however many years old I am. And... What am I doing? How is my life going? Am I on the trajectory I need to be on? And what we're going to look at this morning is a, an evaluation of a church, and a church that's not 15 years old, but a church that's 40 years old. What does a church look like that has been around for going on four decades? What does that look like in the life of a church? We're going to be looking this morning at Jesus' evaluation of, of the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city, uh, the center for government of Asia Minor in the first century, part of the Roman Empire. Uh, Ephesus was an important city. And it had a church which became the epicenter of evangelism and ministry in that region. And Jesus evaluates the church at Ephesus. Now this is the first of seven letters that Jesus gives personally to churches in the region. I want you to read with me Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. God, it is a joy to come to your word this morning. It's a good thing for us to come to a portion of your word that will evaluate our own hearts. That will cast light into our own walk with you. Even our own church. God, we pray that we would hear what your spirit has said to the churches. And while we gaze through the lens of your evaluation of the church at Ephesus, I pray that we would be eager and ready to see what you would have in store Uh, for our own hearts and lives. God, we love You. We recognize that our uh, love for You cannot match uh, Your great and infinite love for us. And in that we revel and ask for Your help to understand what You would say in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it be like to be audited by Jesus? What would it be like to have Jesus personally evaluate Grace Bible Church? Or even to personally evaluate our own hearts and lives. Here in the church of Ephesus we have an opportunity to see what Jesus would say to a church that had been around for about 40 years. It's important for us to put ourselves in the situation of a Christian in the church at Ephesus and to see Jesus personal assessment of that church. And we happen to know a little bit about the church at Ephesus. It had a prominent founding set of members and pastors. In fact, it had a remarkable pedigree of religious instruction, of leadership. You had Priscilla and Aquila, that husband and wife team, uh, who had given their lives to making the gospel known in every city they were in. Apollos was there. He was the man mighty in the scriptures and who was uh, leading many to faith in Jesus. Of course, Paul, on his third missionary journey, stayed there some three years Timothy was a pastor there. Paul wrote two letters to him in 65 A.D., 1 Timothy, and in 67 or 68 A.D., 2 Timothy. Those letters, uh, in addition to the letter of Ephesians, uh, were written to that church. And of course, John, uh, the one who is penning the book of Revelation, uh, was very likely um, there at the same time, pastoring in the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was the church from which all of the Asian missionary enterprise went forth. In Acts 19 and 20, the church at Ephesus is birthed under persecution. You have the seven sons of Sceva causing trouble in the city, Demetrius the silversmith antagonizing the church. Then, of course, you have the letter to the Ephesians. For three chapters, first three chapters of that letter, uh, Paul grounds them in sound doctrine. A great big view of God, a right view of man, a gospel so clear and beautifully portrayed. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, the Ephesian believers are told to have discernment so that they're not uh, like those tossed around by every wind of trickery and doctrine and craftiness of men. They are to have discernment. They're instructed in Ephesians 4.17 to walk differently than the world around them. The world around them was a, a dark and evil place and they were to look different. In chapter 5, we have warnings about compromise with the surrounding world. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian believers that there is trouble ahead. Trouble ahead even from amongst the leadership. He tells the elders, some among you will rise up and deceive the church. Wolves among the sheep, even amongst the elders in the church. Of course, in First and Second Timothy, you have lots of instructions about teaching sound doctrine. About holding on to what is true. About rejecting false teachers. Sniffing out wolves. And then we come to Revelation 2. So much of our New Testament is instruction for this church at Ephesus. So many of the prominent leaders in our New Testament interacted with the people of this church. It's hard to think of a church with a richer history, or a greater depth of instruction, or a stronger lineup of pastoral leadership. So, in 40 years, who have been your pastors, Christian at Ephesus? Oh, the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, perhaps Apollos, a remarkable lineup of leadership in the church. So how did they do? How did Jesus evaluate this church a couple of generations after their beginning? And there are six elements to this evaluation. There's a salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. That'll be our outline this morning. I'll repeat that again for us as we go through. The first element of this letter is the salutation The salutation or the greeting. Jesus says through the Apostle John, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Here's this greeting to the church at Ephesus. Uh, This was written some 35 years after Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus had become the center for evangelism in Asia. It was the first city that you would come to in what is now modern Turkey. Uh, All of the Roman officials were required to pay Ephesus a visit. Uh, That's kind of the first city on the postal route. So anything that went into this region went through Ephesus first. The government, the seat of Roman government was in Ephesus. And the city was uh, a big city. It had a 25,000 seat stadium. It was the center of commerce. Uh, There was a wealthy seaport nearby. And it was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis. Uh, her temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world, 425 by 220 by 60 feet. Uh, in fact, they've reconstructed it in downtown Nashville. Uh, you can go to Nashville and see the, the Temple of Diana. And it sits on 127 marble pillars, 36 of which are encrusted with gold and jewels. In the middle of Diana's temple was a great big tree, and it was considered an asylum for unrepentant criminals. You see, you can commit the the most heinous crimes in humanity. And if you could get away from the authorities and you could get to Ephesus and you could get to the center of Ephesus and you could get to Diana's temple and you could get to that inner sanctum, it was inviolable. Nobody could touch you. It was a free zone. It was base for unrepentant criminals. The temple boasted thousands of priests and priestesses. Uh, The worship there was temple prostitution. The um, city was known for its temple. Elsewhere in scripture we have this, Great is Diana of Ephesus. She was like the emblem of the city. Immorality of Ephesus was world-renowned. In addition to the Diana cult, there were also two temples dedicated to the emperor. And emperor worship was required. He had to worship the emperor as God. This is the city to whom Jesus is writing, the church which resides in Ephesus. And in this salutation, he refers to himself, he says, the one who holds the seven stars is the one writing this letter. And that as a reference back to chapter 1 of Revelation. In fact, every one of the letters to the seven churches introduces Jesus with some reference back to the vision in chapter 1. And, and listen to the way Jesus is seen by John, Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him I fell at his feet like a dead man And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." What we see here in chapter 1 is a picture of Jesus unlike the picture of Jesus John had earlier in his ministry. 60 years prior, John had been the disciple whom Jesus loved who even leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Intimate, close friendship. Here he falls like a dead man before the unveiled, unclothed, unabashed glory of the same person. Staggering. Who when he speaks, it sounds like Niagara Falls. When his face is shining like the sun, you can't stare at it. And John falls down as a dead man. And Jesus comes and comforts John. And gives him a message to speak, to write. This unveiled, uncloaked, awesome, beautiful, terrifying, comforting, immense person has a message for the church at Ephesus. And here he describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 tells us the stars are the angels of the seven churches, uh, which I think tells us something about the the cosmic nature, the the spiritual nature, uh, even the invisible nature of what's really going on at church. You see, when we gather together, when the church at Ephesus would gather together, it's not mere people doing merely physical things people, organizational, administrative gathering things. But there is an invisible cosmic reality to what is going on in church. There are spiritual forces at work. There is spiritual activity at work. There are things going on in the invisible realm that we get to see a little bit of here. And Jesus says the lampstands are the churches." What is this picturing for us? The, if Jesus is the one walking amongst the stars and walking amongst the lampstands, I think this pictures Christ's possession of the churches. They are His. This pictures His sovereign care over the churches. This pictures Jesus' presence among the churches. He inspects them, He knows what takes place in His churches. This also gives us the picture of Jesus' ability to remove the lampstands. Right? That is the threat here in this passage, both for Laodicea and for Ephesus. The threat is if you don't shape up, you don't get to be a church anymore. Jesus removes the lampstand. Jesus is present, sovereign, and concerned in and among his churches. And the picture here is important. The churches are lampstands. What is a lampstand for? A lamp. Right, um, what's the lamp? The church is the lampstand. Jesus Himself is the light for which the lampstand exists. The mission of the church is to be the lampstand to put Jesus on display. That's what the church is for. That's the salutation. The second element of Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus is the commendation. The commendation. This is what Ephesus is doing right. It begins with the words, I know, I know. Uh, those words are comforting and convicting, are they not? It's like uh, Psalm thirty, uh, Psalm 139. If God knows everything about me, if He knows me in my innermost being, well, oh, that's good. Wait, that's scary. <laughs> right? In this evaluation, it's good and it's scary. Uh, it's a good thing that Jesus knows everything. What he knows. This brings comfort to those churches that are persecuted. Uh, it brings comfort to those churches that are suffering, that are persevering, that are enduring. That's what Jesus says here to the Church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know that your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. He also says in verse 6, You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. All of these things are commendable. And Jesus says, I know these things. First of all, He says, I know your deeds. That is your life and conduct in keeping with Christ's likeness. He says, I know your toil. Uh, That word is an all-out exertion to the point of weariness. He says, I know your perseverance. The courageous acceptance of hardship, of suffering, and of loss. Listen, Jesus knew that a Christian in Ephesus was persecuted on all sides. As a Christian following Jesus the Messiah, they were no longer under the protection of the Jewish synagogue. You see, the Jews in Ephesus were not required to worship the emperor. They were not pressured to worship Diana. Diana. They were given a special dispensation under the Roman Empire for being separate and unique. They didn't have to worship the emperor, burn a candle to him, and then get a little card that says, the uh, stamped, that says, I worship the emperor this year, that allows you to go into the market and buy food and sell things. They didn't have to go through all the motions of uh, idolatrous worship to get credit, just to be able to hold down a job. But the Jews persecuted the Christians, considered them a sect and not Jews, and de synagogued them. So now the Christians, not under the protection of the synagogue, were liable to prosecution for not worshiping the emperor as God and for not worshiping any of the pagan deities that were also worshiped in the city. Jesus knew this. They were courageous, they accepted this hardship. They accepted suffering, they accepted loss. Perhaps the loss of friends and family, perhaps the loss of a job. Certainly the difficulty of buying and selling. Jesus also commends them for their intolerance. Sounds like a bad word today, I recognize. But he says, you have not tolerated evil men. This is a good thing. They had an ongoing inability to bear with false teachers. That's good. They had so many warnings from First and Second Timothy about false teachers. They had warnings from Paul himself about leaders who would rise up from amongst them. And Jesus says, you, you did these things. You had discernment. They fulfilled Ephesians 4.14. Uh, that they wouldn't be like uh, tossed by the waves and winds of every wind of trickery and, and bad doctrine. They held on to the truth. If there was trouble outside of the church. The seven sons of Sceva, Demetrius, an angry mob, in Acts 19 the Temple of Artemis, uh, the Emperor cult, the Jews, and then the Nicolaitans. It's possible that the the Nicolaitans, and and Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, you hate them, and that's good. Uh, These Nicolaitans are are very likely descendants, disciples of Nicholas. We find Nicholas in Acts chapter 6 as one of the first proto-deacons, one of those men who was chosen for his Godly character to serve the church when the Greek widows were not being taken care of like the Jewish widows were being taken care of. And the apostle said, we need to give our time and attention to the word of God and prayer. We need godly men full of the Holy Spirit who can serve. And they became sort of that first level of what later became the office of deacon in the church. And Nicholas was one of those men who by outward appearance seemed to be qualified to fill that role. Later on in life, uh, Nicholas and the Nicolaitans were those who claimed to be Christians and said, you can be a Christian, you can be a follower of Jesus, and you can participate in the things of the city. The sexual immorality, the pagan worship, all of the rest. They were false teachers. In fact, they weren't claiming to destroy Christianity but to alter it from the inside, to offer a new version of it, corrupting it. They were posers and wolves and false teachers. This would be uh, trouble from outside the church. The Nicolaitans were removed from the fellowship of the local churches. But then you also had trouble inside the church. The the false apostles, that that ever-present possibility that someone would be deluded, a self-deceived deceiver within the church... To lead people away. And Jesus commends the church. You you tested those who called themselves apostles. But they're not. You found them to be false. They had endurance and perseverance. Verse 3. For Jesus sake. And this is a paradoxical commendation. You have toiled to the point of weariness. And yet you are not weary. For my name's sake. The Ephesian church had practical holiness, theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise. They suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. They were a mature, established, tested, seasoned body of believers. What is the church at Ephesus like 40 years after its inception? Discerning. Doctrinally pure. And you know, we should take some cues here. Uh, How is Grace Bible Church doing? How will Grace Bible Church be doing 25 years from now? Could it be said of Grace Bible Church 25 years from now? That we're discerning, holding on to the truth, rejecting false teaching, uh, exhausting ourselves for loyalty to Christ and not tired of it yet? Could those things be said? You and I uh, ought to take cues from the commendations that Jesus gives in each one of these letters. To not do these things uh, would bring about a judgment from Jesus. Do we take a halftime?
1: Yeah, we have time.
0: Okay. This would be a great time. Um, Before we get... Well, because the next word here is but... I have this against you. That's a great transition point. So why don't we uh, take five minutes? We've looked at the salutation and the commendation. And in verse four, uh, we see Jesus' confrontation. And Jesus begins by saying, but I have this against you. And this is the scary part of the audit. What would it be like for Jesus to stand in front of Grace Bible Church and say, Grace Bible Church, I have this against you. What would it be like for Jesus to stand in front of you and say, I have this against you. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know this. I know that. And I have something against you. What does he say to the church at Ephesus? You have left your first love. The word left here is the word that's used for divorce, uh, for abandonment. This is a sad and definite departure. What is this first love? Well, this is a, a love stated generally. Jesus doesn't spell it out. And so we have a question. Is this love for God? Is that the first love? Is this love for fellow believers? Is that our first love or is it love for the lost? Now, what, what does Jesus mean here? Um, I want you to know that the, the first love here is not a love of first priority. That's not what the words here mean. It is the love you had at the first. Literally is what it says. The love you had at the first. It's, it's kind of like your, the honeymoon love that you experienced when you were a first a church. You and I could think about it in terms of uh, when you were first a believer in Jesus Christ, do you remember how you loved the love you had at the first? And I believe this encapsulates all three loves I just mentioned. The love you had at the first was first of all a love for God because God had first loved us. And a love for God overflowed in love for other people. A love for believers and love for the lost. I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. Do you remember the first days of your following Jesus? Do you have fresh memories of your own rescue? It was 1980, Washington National Airport, where Air Florida Flight 90 took off in a blinding snowstorm. They had spent a couple of hours before the flight getting de-iced, Uh, where the trucks come over with chemicals and spray down the uh, fronts of the engines and the leading edges of the wings and try to remove all of the ice and snow. And while they sat on the runway waiting to take off, more ice and snow accumulated. They decided to take off, and as the pilot pushed the throttles forward, the co-pilot noticed, hey, some of these numbers aren't right. The pilot said, yes, it's fine. And less than a minute later, the last thing the pilot said was, We're going in. 74 on board were killed as Air Florida Flight 90 crashed onto the 4th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., over the Potomac River. The airplane then plunged into the icy Potomac River. There were four people in vehicles on the bridge that were killed, and then there were a few survivors treading water. ...in the icy Potomac River. Lenny Skutnik was an assistant at the Congressional Budget Office... ...who happened to be driving by... ...jumped out of his truck, threw off his boots... ...and jumped into the water. Because one on board, Priscilla Tirado... ...was trying to be helped. There was a helicopter overhead that had lowered a rope... ...and her fingers were so numb she could not grab the rope. So Lenny Skutnik uh, slid across the ice... ...jumped into the open water... ...went to Priscilla, grabbed her... ...grabbed onto the rope... Dragged them both to shore and saved her life. Can you imagine what Priscilla must think about this guy, Lenny Skutnik? A hero. Would she ever forget? Would that story very soon be erased from her memories? (laughs) What could Lenny Skutnik ever do to... uh, ameliorate her affections for him as her rescuer well you and I have a, a much better rescuer than Lenny Skutnik from a much more dangerous and precarious position than Priscilla Tirado was in you and I have been rescued from eternal condemnation under the unflinching wrath of almighty God in hell forever and ever and ever by the rescue that came at the cross Our Lord Jesus? Do you feel the fresh remembrance of your own rescue? Do you remember what it was like when you first understood that you were a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus was just that one who could actually save you from your sin? (coughs) When He changed your heart and you believed and you loved for the first time because you had been loved. Do you remember that? Jesus is talking about the first love that the Ephesian believers had had. Love for God overflowed from their rescue. The first command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. These things flowed out of a heart that had been rescued. And love of neighbor, Jesus tells us who our neighbor is, it's everybody. There's going to be a love for fellow believers. And there's going to be a love for the lost. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, if you love Jesus, you will be drawn to love what he loves. And Jesus loves his bride, the church. To say that we love God but don't love our brother is to be deceived about our love for God. And if you love Jesus, you'll be drawn to love your neighbor. Jesus told us our neighbor was pretty much everybody. Love for the brethren, love for others, they flow out of love for Christ. And if you notice your love for others waxing cold, that's a barometer. It's an indication that your love for Christ has gone cold. For if you love Christ supremely, you will love His bride. And if you love Christ supremely, you will not be able to help telling others about Him. You see, the best evangelists are those who love Jesus. We naturally tell people about what we love. You find yourself not sharing the gospel very easily. You need to check your love for Christ. What does Jesus say about the church at Ephesus? Their love for Christ had gone cold. You see, the Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on their lampstand without paying much attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. How good is a lampstand with no light? It's a paperweight, it's a knickknack, a collectible, perhaps. Someone might come into your room and say, that's a really nice lampstand you've got there. You've been polishing that thing. Boy, it is shiny. Um, where, where's the lamp? A lampstand with no light is just collecting dust on a shelf. You see, doctrinal purity, theological fidelity, suffering under persecution, are supposed to be a platform for the light of Christ to shine. They themselves are not the light. Do you understand the relationship? Jesus is the light. Our love for him can grow dim while we're busy doing things for him. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance for compromise. These things are not designed to be the fuel for a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent, personal love for God through Jesus Christ. And listen, those things, doctrinal purity... Moral integrity, those things are essential for the life of the church. They're indispensable. But they're not the purpose of the church. They're not the fuel of the church. And so there's a command. This comes in verse 5. Therefore, remember... Remember, this is a present tense command. The idea is to keep on remembering, go on, make it a habit of every day, all the time, remembering from where you have fallen. And for you grammarians that have fallen is in the perfect tense. That is, you fell at some point in the past and you are remaining right now in a fallen position. You have fallen and you're still down from your first love remember from where you were and then repent this is a deliberate decisive change of attitude resulting in a change of action repent and then return another deliberate decisive command return do the things you used to do when love for me was at the center You see, the Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, theological discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty, these things all originated from love for Christ. But subtly, imperceptibly, they had replaced love for Christ. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of that blazing center. And listen, it's easy to see how that could happen. A church is birthed in the gospel and everything's new. Brand new believers who love Christ. At Ephesus, they burned their magic books in the city square. Some 50,000 days wages worth of old life set on fire in the middle of the city. Why? Because they loved Jesus. They were glad to face rejection and persecution. And persecution and rejection produces isolation. Right, Man, I, it's not fun to go out in the world to get beat up every day, so let's just hang out together. Outside trouble promote, promotes isolation and protectionism. And then think about this. Inside trouble, Nicholas was originally part of a church. The, the false apostles were those who claimed to be Christians... Uh, Even elders in the church at Ephesus who had defected had all come from the inside. And think about what inside trouble promotes. It breeds skepticism and suspicion. Pretty soon everyone's looking over his shoulder for someone who's going to compromise morally, someone who will teach something that is off theologically. And it's not long until a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, moral integrity, and its ability to discern error within and without The central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus is no longer shining. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned, and the church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. And the machinery of the church is still functioning. The doors are open on Sundays, sermons are preached, songs are sung, error is pointed out, sin is exposed, compromisers are run out of town, But the defining characteristic of a church, the defining characteristic of a Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Look at Jesus' warning in verse 5. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else... I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is not a reference to Jesus' final return. Rather, this is an immediate, personal corrective to be made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. You see, a church cannot survive merely on what it is against. What it stands opposed to. A church cannot define itself by what it is against. A church must be characterized by, defined by, and driven by love. Love is to be the lifeblood of the church. And if it is not, the church at Ephesus can no longer exist. To be useful for Christ, you must be inflamed with love for Christ, or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. And I think you know based on this context, the love we're talking about here is not some sappy, syrupy, uh, undiscerning, morally compromised affection. But a love for Christ will produce the things that the Ephesian church was commended for. But love has to be the center. And so there's a plea for us in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, this isn't just a plea for Ephesus. Let him who has an ear to hear. This is a way to say, are you on the frequency? Are you tuning into this radio station? You know, if you have an AM radio and somebody is broadcasting an FM signal, you're not going to hear it. You can tune your dial back and forth all day long and never pick up the signal. But if you have an FM radio and you're tuned into the frequency, you'll be able to hear what's being broadcast. Jesus here is broadcasting a message for anyone who has ears to hear. And how does someone have ears to hear? If the Holy Spirit has turned on your hearing. This is a message to Christians. And this is a message to churches beyond the walls of the church at Ephesus, beyond the first century. And I love what the, the text says here. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? This, is a, this is a great place where our Bible has a very specific context and a very specific church in mind, but immediately tells us this is applicable to all churches that can hear. Those born of the Spirit are going to hear spiritual things. This is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful. Amidst the compromise of others. And there's a promise with this in verse 7. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. And there's a promise to overcomers in every one of these letters. John is the, the, the author here, the human pen. And in 1 John 5, he tells us exactly what an overcomer is. An overcomer is one who believes in Jesus, a genuine Christian. That's what he means by overcomer. It's the Greek word nikao, we get our brand name Nike. The, the victorious one, the overcomer, the victor, a true believer. What is the promise to a genuine believer? The tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Uh, this is a way for Jesus to describe eternal life. Eternal life, Uh, the tree of life and Genesis and Revelation, the bookends of your Bible. Your your Bible begins with a picture of the tree of life and ends with a picture of the tree of life. Uh, What Adam and Eve lost for us in the garden, direct access to God and living forever in his paradise. The whole rest of the Bible is how do we get back in? And the Bible ends with something better than it began. A permanent, perfected state in the paradise of God with immediate access to God forever and ever and ever with no possibility of sin again. No more death. No more sorrow. That's the paradise of God. The tree of life stands as an emblem of this great big promise of God. That is what is in store for the Ephesian believers who hold on to Christ. That's what's in store for us. I love what Jesus does in each one of these letters. He addresses something very specific in the city that the people would be aware of. Remember the temple of Diana? Remember what was in the center of the temple of Diana? This great big tree, which was an asylum for unrepentant criminals. They even called it a tree of life. So, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give him to be a part of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Genuine believers are those who overcome and inherit the promise of God. The tree of life promised by Jesus is way better than an asylum for an unrepentant criminal. The eternal, pure paradise of God where no unclean thing exists. And yet, for Jesus to place us there means that he does something in us, for us, to prepare us for that place. It's not an asylum for unrepentant criminals. It is a place where the ungodly have been declared to be righteous by the grace of God, who have then been prepared through a process of sanctification and ultimately glorified so that they are no longer impure, no longer unclean, but have a right to access to the paradise of God. A right we don't deserve, an access we have not earned, but one that has been given us by God's grace through the cross of His Son. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it will be like to be in heaven and to look around and see other people there. Some people think, you know, I I can't believe that guy's there. Mm -hmm. Or, man, where's so-and-so? I thought for sure they would be here. I think the reality is you and I will be so overwhelmed. I can't believe I'm here. Richard Baxter said it this way. um, How can someone who committed such vile crimes be given such a glorious crown? How can my history and my future belong to the same person? It just doesn't seem right. And it's God's gracious gift. Well, how did the church respond? Church history tells us that Ephesus repented collectively as a church and functioned as a witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation beyond this. That's good news. Today, Ephesus is a secular Islamic state. Very few Christians, uh, very little witness, very little representation of Christ. 2,000 years later, what ought we to be thinking about Ephesus, about this letter, about our own church? Well, first of all, you and I should never be content... With doctrinal error. We should never be content with doctrinal error. You and I ought to listen to the commendations Jesus gives to the church at Ephesus. They actually were obedient in running out false teaching. They were actually commended by Jesus for, listen to this, hating the Nicolaitans. You and I should never get comfortable with moral compromise. We should never be naive about false teachers within the church. You see, the church will be undone if truth loses out to false teaching or if holiness is replaced by immorality. You don't get to have a church anymore if you compromise with the culture, if you give in to false teaching. But the message of the church at Ephesus is this doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, heresy hunting do not in themselves define a healthy church. You have to work hard to maintain the fire of love for Christ at the heart level. But we cannot let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of doing love. It's much easier as a church to do programs than it is to maintain fervent love. Fervent love for Christ, fervent love for each other in the body of Christ, fervent love for the lost. As a church, as individuals, we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us? What would Jesus say about your life? What would Jesus say about your heart? What would Jesus say about your love for him? What might Jesus say about your view of sound teaching? What would Jesus say about Grace Bible Church? I don't know how long Grace Bible Church will last on this earth, in God's providence and his kindness. Uh, could this church uh, evaporate or compromise in the next decade? Or might it last a couple decades? It's interesting, there's no 2,000 year old local church that has remained faithful to the gospel. It's hard to find one that lasts 100 years. And what did Jesus say? Uh, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I think also in the providence of God, no individual manifestation of the local church um, has lasted. But we have a responsibility. And this is this comes from Joshua 23.11. Take diligent heed to yourselves. To love Yahweh your God. Take diligent heed to yourselves. To love Yahweh your God. Sounds a lot like one of the disciplines of Wellspring. Does it not? How might this letter address... Us in this room, as it relates to the wellspring disciplines. Any thoughts? Question. Wait, what was that? Um... Again. I oh, Joshua twenty three 11. eleven. Oh, twenty
1: three eleven. Joshua, Joshua
0: twenty three eleven. Could you repeat it one more time? Yes, Joshua twenty three eleven is take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh your God. What does it look like practically to cultivate renewed affections for Christ? What do you do, ladies? Let's compare notes a little bit. Jana? Um, I think we need to go to the word of God <laughs> and just get to know the God. That saved you. Know him well.
1: And just to pursue him, meditate. Fill your heart and your mind with him, who he is, what he's done, and it results
0: in loving him. Yeah. Does absence make the heart grow fonder? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. no. And specifically with the gospel. Yes. So that we don't become just all filled with doctrine and yeah. my teaching, yeah. but keep going back to who he is and what he's done for yeah. us.
0: Must we be filled with right thinking and doctrine? Yes. Must we take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? Yes. Must we think God's thoughts after him? Yes. Must we remain faithful to the things that he has prescribed and taught for us? Absolutely. (laughs) But to do so without a perpetual remembrance, meditating on, thinking on our rescue, (laughs) the lampstand will be taken away.
1: We were talking about them mm-hmm. and, um, being very the mm-hmm.
0: uh, challenge that uh, we don't mm-hmm. that we take every opportunity, that every person Thank you, Ron. That's good. What, what is isolationism? What, what's going on there? Self-protection, seeks his own desires, comfort. There's a whole host of idolatry there, is there not? Self-absorption. I am, I am worshiping at the altar of my comfort. And, and let's think about that for a little bit on a Sunday morning at Grace Bible Church. Um, do, do we Are we quick to run to the people that we're most comfortable relating to? Probably. And listen, I don't want to take away from that. We come to church on a Sunday morning and we're so glad to see each other and encourage each other. We're supposed to. We're family. We're the body of Christ. We should do that. Don't not do that. <laughs> but please <laughs> remember what it was like to walk into Grace Bible Church the first day and wonder... It, is this a loving church? How might I know that? You know, and, and maybe you've done this. Maybe you, you sit down and you just watch and you go, okay, how long is it going to take? Is somebody going to come say hello to me? And maybe you're an extrovert and you're okay just sort of testing that and then eventually you'll get up and go find somebody. <laughs> maybe you're an introvert and you walk away and say, this is the most unloving church I've ever visited. And people have done that. I have talked to people who have come to Grace Bible Church and said, nobody said hi to me. I visited three weeks in a row and nobody cared for me. And I've talked to people who said, this is the most loving church I've ever been to. Um, And, you know, um, I just think we in our small groups and Sunday mornings um, have to be outside of ourselves. Ready to love others. And repent of the idolatry of what I want in my life is my own comfort. Be ready to be uncomfortable for love for others. Now, outside of the walls of Grace Bible Church, what is your life like in evangelistic opportunities? Just out in the world um, with coworkers, school friends, other moms, uh, wherever you find yourself. Um, is your life open? and ready to love, especially those who are difficult to love. I, and Just to go back to the illustration of the plane crash. By the way, my dad's uh, college roommate was the co-pilot on that flight. And I've listened to the cockpit voice recorder and read the transcripts, and he was killed in that. Um, and they did a lot of things wrong. Um, and uh, they've changed procedures since then to avoid that kind of uh, an accident. Um, but can you imagine what it would be like To jump into the freezing water and try to rescue somebody who couldn't do anything for themselves. Completely hopeless and helpless. Um, Not an easy rescue. You and I shouldn't think that uh, reaching out to somebody who needs Christ is going to be easy. But life and death necessary, right? Jan. Jan.
1: Oh, but um, well going back to the isolationist attitude or concept, is that's what happens, I think, when we go out into the world. Is a lot of times people perceive Christians as being judgmental mm-hmm. and uh, exclusionary, exclusionary. And uh, I think that um, one thing I hear I, I, in my lifetime, I have never run into this before, and I all of a sudden in the last month, I run into two people that are atheists, Mm. and both people have said all the damage that that religion and Christianity has done to humanity, and I'm thinking well, you know that comes from not understanding and just taking their perception whoever's it is, of what they think Christianity is Mm -hmm. and that's our fault because we're not Sharing the truth mm-hmm. and reaching out and loving and reaching and like you said, it's very dangerous it's very dangerous relationship wise yeah. and it's very difficult right. and it's very draining because I've went through this with my cousin mm-hmm. and i I'm like, you know, but all you can do is try and hopefully a seed of truth will be planted but that was kind of a very much of a wake-up call for yeah. me when I heard two atheists tell me the same thing, all the damage that Christianity has done to humanity.
0: And you know what? They're absolutely right. Yeah. They're absolutely they right. they are.
1: But, because then, but that's not the true religion that's right. of our belief of Christ.
0: That's right. If there are a billion Christians in the world, how many know Jesus? Yeah. Very small number. Yeah. And what is the world seen of Christianity yeah. and Christendom? Um, not good. Mm-hmm. And and uh, man's religion as a fraud and a deception, and what Paul calls the doctrines of demons, it is at its root satanic, as a, as a cheap counterfeit to the truth, uh, has done immense damage. Um, and, and we can't help the labels that people put on us. But what can we do? I love what you said, Jan. Um, with love, boldly proclaim the truth. And do we have an exclusive mm-hmm. message? Yes, should we be uh, exclusionary people? Absolutely not. We must go open-handed, open-hearted uh, to everyone that will move with the exclusive message of salvation in Jesus. That's, that's right. You
2: know, I am so thankful. I'm sorry. No,
1: go ahead. I'm so thankful for um, your chart. The mixed condition mm-hmm. uh, when we're sharing with people. Uh, we can share in humility and love that we are all, we have all come from the same place. Mm-hmm. We're all sinners. And we're, we're not perfect, uh, we still sin, but by the grace of God we've been saved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it makes a difference
0: in our lives. And hopefully there is a difference in our lives. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Dana? I don't know how
2: much time we have. I have a question. Yeah, it's okay? Um, just in that verse 7, where it's talking about the reward, the will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, to him who overcomes. So is the flip true? Is the other flip that if you don't, is he basically saying here, if you don't repent um, and do the things that you did at first, you will not have eternal yep. life? That's right. Okay, so here's my question and all that. So all the works that they had done, mm mm-hmm. Were not fruit or evidence of being a believer?
0: Well, they were if they're genuine believers. Okay. Um, how does that show itself? Perseverance. Perseverance. The one who makes it to the end. Um, and so this is the, this is the relationship between um, a genuine believer and a false professor. Um, both sprout stalks, to, to go back to one of Jesus' parables, but... Um, The weed and the tares. Mm -hmm. And the stalks both look the same. There's growth. There seems to be production. And one Mm -hmm. lasts to the end and bears real spiritual fruit. And the other proves itself to have been a weed all along. Mm -hmm. Um, And the disciples said, hey, should we rip out the weeds? No, no, no. (laughs) You'll, You'll rip out wheat too. Wait till the end, wait till the harvest, God will take care of all that, he'll sort it out. In other words, you and I can't tell the difference all the time between a false professor and a genuine, any more than the disciples could figure out who it was who was going to defect and betray Jesus at the Last Supper. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? And Judas leaves. How did they not see that coming? Right?
2: Um, Well, and I guess, and if this is something we need to talk about later, let me know, but... um, with this in mind i'm reminded of first corinthians where in chapter three you know it talked about how um the laying of the foundation mm-hmm. and um if anyone can i can read it please okay um for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is jesus christ now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So when do we know it's a first Corinthian situation where the believer built his life in a very um, I'm esteeming that saying, um, "My life here on Earth," I'm not building on um, good, lasting, eternal fruit mm-hmm. of what Jesus has done, mm-hmm. and so I'm kind of confused on whether the, what's Revelation two and what's First Great. Corinthians. Great,
0: yeah, and what First Corinthians three is only talking about <laughs> a genuine believer. Who builds with some gold and builds with some straw? Um, the the corollary to Revelation two, the the person you're talking about who is a false professor, has only ever been building with straw because that's all he has to build with. You're talking about an unbeliever at that point, but someone who thinks they're a Christian or at, convinces others that he's a Christian, right? Um, the what I used to look at First Corinthians three as a threat. Like, God, I've been doing all this stuff for you, and I'm going to show up in heaven, and you're going to destroy some of it. I'm glad I'm saved, but man, all that stuff went up in smoke. Wait a second. Hay, straw, stubble. I, the, the stuff that I did for myself, the, the foul motives, the, the, all the temporal garbage fleshly stuff that I thought was so great. I don't want to bring that in here. God, thank you for burning that up. Um, and the stuff that's refined and remains is gold. Uh, God produces the good works that he rewards. This is, this is a staggering thought about the grace of our God. Um, nobody, if purple is the good stuff, um, God produces that. Right. Ephesians 2.10, God prepared good works in advance that we might walk in them. Who prepared them? Well, God did. What do we do? We walk in them. He's the one producing good spiritual fruit. Now, in our mixed condition, I'm, I'm still producing some straw. But God is so kind, he's going to dispense with that garbage. <laughs> he's going to burn it up. And you know what he's going to do with the good stuff he produced? According to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, and so many passages in our Bible. I had a, a seminary professor do an entire dissertation on rewards in the New Testament. It was like a thousand page Book that he wrote. I've not read it. <laughs> but he just exhausts the topic of rewards. The, the New Testament is full of promises for rewards for believers. Why is God going to reward good things that only He could produce? This is another question we'll probably have in heaven as God is giving out rewards. You know, uh, some guy bore fruit to tenfold and another hundredfold, and God gives rewards for those things based on your obedience and fruit bearing. God, wait a second. I thought you're the one that produced. All of these things that you're now rewarding me for. Why are you rewarding me for the things that only you can produce? Because that's the kind of God he is. He gives and he gives and he gives. No one in heaven is going to be saying, yep, I did that. Look at look at all the medals and badges and crown gold, jewels in my crown, whatever. Um... God produces those things. So the, the, the first Corinthians uh, 3 person who's being rewarded, who's having some things burned up, that's one person having hay and straw burned up and gold and silver refined and rewarded. Um, the corollary to Revelation 2, the non-victor is an unbeliever who has only ever produced straw, or to use Paul's terminology in Philippians 3, rubbish. It doesn't get okay. rewarded, but only punished. What's that?
3: But, it's good looking rubbish. but it looks good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Rubbish. Yeah. And that and that, that man is. Love. He, he had a
2: love in the beginning. It says here that he has to go back to that first love well, that he once had. Well, right?
0: and well, remember here, Jesus in this letter is speaking collectively to the church. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to uh, take Jesus' letter here and say the individual. Um, Jesus is not making this absolute declaration that every individual in Ephesus who's reading this was a genuine believer who did everything they did out of love for Christ. We already know that's not true, even amongst the elders at Ephesus who weren't believers. They might have been, and you know how this is easy to do in Christian culture, in the context of a church, there's a great, wonderful, positive peer pressure. Right? This is the danger for our kids uh, that, that grow up here. That they do what we do they sing with gusto the songs that we sing they rehearse the truths that we proclaim and ngm they come back and they tell us all the great stuff that they learned and they believe it with all their heart but it doesn't necessarily mean they're born again um and they might do deeds in keeping with the truths that they've at some level taken in um and outwardly i mean judas looked like the other disciples for a long time um and so it's it's possible to have all of the outward trappings of Christianity. Uh, this is why in the in the, the, the book of Hebrews you have uh, the entire letter addressed to people who look like Christians, smell like Christians, act like Christians, but aren't. But who could know that but God? on Yes. That's that would be bad. You'll have to read Matthew 7, 21 for me.
1: Not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? And then I will tell them i never knew you. Away from
0: and I didn't intend this by the illustration, but the, the, if the purple is the outward profession, it's, it's merely outward. Here, the outward purple profession is also joined with inward reality. Um, let's take the last six minutes and go back to this first question. Um, how do we cultivate affectionate love for Christ that overflows into love for others, practically? What do you do, ladies? What does that look like? Janet mentioned staying in God's word, keep keeping a disciplined um, place there. What else? What else do you do? Accountability. Wellspring is
1: a great place for accountability, mm-hmm. but small group is mm-hmm. another place that keeps us accountable, keeps us in there, keeps our first love
3: there. Yeah. Thinking about your plane illustration with the rescue, I would imagine if I were, if I had been rescued from icy waters, so close to death. I wouldn't have to think about it, We would come in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I was so close to dying, and I would probably get fearful, and then to think about the man's arms wrapping around me and grabbing onto the rope, spending serious time on a daily, regular mm-hmm. basis, contemplating mm-hmm. the reality of hell, how close I was to it, how I deserve it, um, the rescue that came, mm-hmm. like actually thinking through that soberly, mm-hmm. yeah. because that, that, Will inevitably lead to love. Yeah, I, I hope
0: that is a practice in your meditation. I hope that is something you do. It's it's one of the reasons we love doing the Lord's table every Sunday, to bring us back to that. I
2: think I think just being willing to um, deny myself those those selfish you know comforts or pleasures when I'd rather stay home and sleep or whatever it is that I want to do as opposed to opening my home and embracing other believers and um, whether they're new people or people I've known for a long time and just um, you know, kind of cultivating that love more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: Yeah, that's right. And um, it's interesting. Sometimes we shy away from the incentives that God himself puts in his word. But opening our lives to others out of love is part of this that actually gets rewarded in heaven. And Jesus tells us it gets rewarded in heaven so that we will do it more. Because he knows better than we do what one act of love here translates in eternity for our joy. He's the giver of good things to his children. He wants to give good things, and so he is incentivizing his giving of infinitely greater things Based on our faithfulness to do with the resources we have. Um, he, he knows what's good for us. If we could see eternity, I'm sure we would live differently.
3: I'm asking God to increase our love.
0: Yeah. Yeah, pray. You, you see your love of others waxing cold. You see your coldness and evangelism waxing cold. Pray for God to inflame your love for Christ. Absolutely. I think he likes to answer that one.
1: First to be, know ye that we are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, mm. and that has to be constantly in mind in your walk and what you do, in your mm. speech. Yeah. You do not want to destroy that temple. That's
0: right. Way. Isn't that an interesting picture? If you just ask the question, "Where does God dwell?" as you read your Bible. You know, in heaven, uh, meaning beyond the physical universe, this throne room, Garden of Eden, tabernacle, temple, and then in believers. Uh, there's another interesting one, John one. Um, God tabernacled among us, right? God in the flesh in Jesus, um, and then there's another one. It's the end of the book. The tabernacle of God is among men. He will be their God and they will be his people. And we will have direct, tangible, visible, immediate access in the presence of God's dwelling place forever. But in the meantime, he dwells in us. Yeah, that's, a, that's, again, one of those I know statements. Okay, that's comforting and that's kind of scary too. Rhonda. Rhonda. Me do that. And, and this is very practical for me. And I just think in terms of Revelation chapter 20, in verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the great white throne, that judgment seat of Jesus, and books are opened. And they are judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I try. Uh, I try to think about hell every single day. Uh, I, I try to think about heaven every single day, do something to make me think eternal things. But this helps me pull back the curtain on what I'm actually looking at in the world around me. Every every vehicle in traffic, you know, a football stadium full of people. Um, what we see is this temporal, vanishing portrait of these people. But But the reality is... All of them are in line, as it were, in front of this great white throne with the books open. Uh, John 3 tells us that the wrath of God abides on them already because they have not yet believed in the Son. Um, we see the movers and the shakers in the world. We see the Hollywood celebrities. We see the co-workers. We see the people around us, the you know postal worker. They're They're, they're good guys. They're friends or whatever they are, but we need to see them in the lens of Revelation 20. And and if I could see them standing in line with their deeds about to be read before all of the universe, um, and they're about to be thrown into the lake of fire, what would I say then? If, if, if I could stand in that line and pull some out of that line, what would I be telling them? Um, I think that does away with the the... Well, I'm going to feel comfortable, uh, you know, saying, you know, smiling and maybe they'll understand the gospel if I smile at them. No, that's not what you would do in that line. You would be bold and clear and articulate and you would plead with people even through tears. I need that reminder because I'm tricked by what I just see. Ray comfort has
1: a line. He says, find a sinner in practice when it comes to huh. sharing the gospel. Because we struggle for those words, but mm-hmm. there's plenty of practice all around us. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. And, and listen,
0: what happens if you fumble your words? What happens if you get it wrong? Jesus is Don't ever do it again. That was terrible. You, you pray for help and do it again. Listen, I, I didn't get saved via a perfect gospel proclamation by some world-renowned pastor or evangelist. I don't know how you heard the gospel and got saved. <coughs> but beautiful were the feet, were they not? Uh, Sarah, did you have one
2: final thought? Uh, or well, word? You know,
3: I I've, um, started reading the book of the month, the mm-hmm. Doctrine of Sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's been a flamethrower been for Christ because it helps me understand the sin clearly. And I think the one there's so much in there but um, just uh, really when i go before the lord in repentance to to remember the offense of my sin is against god you know it's really easy to be embarrassed about it or um just have lots of other responses and lots of other reasons why sin is offensive but ultimately it's, it's against the god i mean jesus already he already suffered he already fled mm-hmm. for that Thing that thought that I thought was so worthwhile and so pleasurable um, but, it, but it's utterly offensive to the God of the universe who's here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that humbles me that fuels my repentance but it, it also really fuels my love for Christ. Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: Can I summarize and maybe just sort of give you a bullet point list of those practical things to do to inflame your love for Christ? Stay in God's Word in a disciplined way. You have no idea what God would want to use in your life. Sometimes I read the Bible in the morning and I think, now, what does this have to do with me? So I better skip it. No, you have no idea what it has to do with you, but God does. Keep reading. <laughs> um, disciplined, putting your heart before the Word of God. Um, rehearsing the Gospel. Personally, uh, at the Lord's Table on Sundays, um, with each other in small groups. Um, be discipled by books. That is people who have drunk deeply from these things we're pursuing, uh, who have thought well about Christ and then have done the hard work of putting that together in a way that's understandable and readable. That's discipleship. Um, It it may not be a discipleship and accountability with somebody who's still alive. (laughs) Um, But often the, the best books are those written by someone who's walked with Christ for a long time who writes near the end of their experience with Christ and then shares all of that with us why would we neglect such wisdom do that Um, and then with each other find a good friend who loves Christ more than you and ask them questions like what do you love about Jesus and then be a good friend who does that for others thank you ladies for letting me be here this morning (laughs) Thank <laughs>